Hello, hello. Welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Claire Gorman, Sanya Nepal, and Kate Heine from MIT Sensible City Lab. MIT Sensible City Lab is a research initiative at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to anticipate changes in the way we describe, understand, and design cities. Claire Gorman is a creative technologist and researcher at the Sensible City Lab, where she works on technology-driven urban studies research. Her recent projects address topics including clean energy systems in cities, digital infrastructure for resource management, and the morphology of informal settlements. Sanyana Paul is a scientist and engineer working as a technical associate at MIT Sensible City Lab, where she explores urban environmental problems with the City Scanner platform. Kate Heine is a PhD student in MIT's Institute for Data, Systems, and Society, and a researcher at the Sensible City Lab, where she uses large geospatial datasets to study urban mobility patterns and social mixing in cities. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with these three ladies here, uh, Sanjana Paul, uh, Kate Heine, and Claire Gorman from MIT Sensible City Lab. Hi, everybody. Hi, thank you for having us. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for being here. It's not often we interview three people, so this is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> please tell us more about yourselves for our audience as well. And uh, maybe Sanjana, you can you can start. Yeah, sure. So hi, I'm Sanjana. Uh, I'm a technical associate at the Sensible City Lab, where I work mostly on the City Scanner project. Uh, City Scanner is an environmental sensor that harnesses fleets of vehicles that are in urban environments. So this could be anything from trash trucks to taxis uh, for uh, opportunistic environmental sensing. So we mostly focus on hyperlocal uh, urban air quality, but we're also interested in parameters like heat and noise and are kind of looking to uh, expand the functionality of the system in the near future. Pass it to Kate. Hi, um, I'm Kate. I'm a PhD student in the Institute for Data Systems and Society here um, and a research assistant inside the Sensible City Lab. Um, I would identify myself as a data scientist. So I work with the lab on analyzing large, mainly geospatial data sets to try and understand how people move around cities. Um, specifically, I've been focusing on projects uh, in Stockholm and across the US that look at how people from different parts of a city or different socioeconomic backgrounds within a city mix with one another or to what extent kind of their movements throughout a city are segregated from one another. Um, yeah. And I'll conclude. Hi, my name is Claire. Um, I'm a researcher at the Sensible City Lab, and I have worked on a variety of projects here from urban morphology to new energy systems. Um, but my background is in computer science and architecture, and my interests surround how digital technology and design can overlap to make our built and natural and social environments more sustainable and equitable. Thank you. And um, these are going to be all very valid topics now throughout the course of this one hour. Uh, as we are very much aware that today's cities have a host of problems that we need to address um, and collaborate through, collabor collaboratively through diverse disciplines. So it's great to see you know, um, these powerful brains coming together and really trying to address from uh, through different approaches as well. Um, so in that sense, too, I would love to um, get your perspective on, I guess, some of the underlying reasons of uh, the problems we see in the cities today and why you think your solutions are, uh, I guess, like driven in such direction in order to address those. We do often, you know, I think there's a lot of surface problems that we observe. Um, and I think, you know, the tools you are creating is really help trying to help us understand um, having better idea of what we're observing and why to be able to dig deeper. Um, so I guess like what has driven you to create these solutions because of the problems you were observing and as you're studying on these, what other insights have you been gathering um, as you're diving deeper into these problems and whoever wants to go first. I can start. Um, yeah, so I, like I said, my, um, my kind of domain of interest focuses on 
how people move and mix throughout a city and to what extent people kind of travel the whole city and connect with one another and to what extent they're sort of separate cities within cities or different socioeconomic groups or neighborhoods are somewhat segregated and only interact with one another. Um, and I think what's interesting to me about that question is that the reason that we have cities is there are a lot of really like rich resources that come from being located with other people, um, be that like tangible resources, like the fact that we can have like opera houses in big cities. Um, and then also just the resource of like interactions with other people, which um, I think a lot of sociologists for decades and decades have pinpointed as a really big benefit of living kind of like in a society in a city. Uh, but if people aren't mixing evenly and getting exposed to one another and able to explore a whole city, then those benefits aren't really evenly distributed across the residents of, of a city. So I think that's like kind of the, the motivating factor for me for studying social mixing in cities. Um, and it, because we now have so much large data on how people move around cities, we can really identify that people are segregated in the way that they move through cities. Um, this is something that's been mapped by a lot of different researchers. Um, and actually, I, and I, I think, and I think we at the Sensible City Lab think that um, the next step is like, okay, so what can we do about that? What are kind of spaces that can be created to help foster diverse interactions between people from far parts of the city? Um, and how can we really pinpoint the effects of different types of spaces or different types of urban design on allowing people to mix. And that's a much, it's a really difficult question because the actual cause of this kind of like segregation or um, in the way that we move is really complex. It comes from personal preferences. It comes from transit systems. Um, it comes from just the effects of residential segregation, which has its own driving forces and like housing prices and things like that. Um, so it's a really big open question. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if that totally answered your question. That's me kind of like highlighting the issues and not necessarily the solutions, but yeah, we've been trying to look at specifically what are the spaces within cities where people really mix with one another in order to try and understand how to design cities that are kind of inclusive and equitable. Yeah, amazing. I've so many thoughts on that, but I'll let all of you go first. Um, yeah, I guess I can go next. Um, I mean, touching upon a lot of what Kate said, there's this big question of kind of equity when it comes to the environment, uh, because climate change uh, and the drivers of climate change and the effects of climate change and environmental degradation are fundamentally unequal. Some groups are going to be more affected than others. Uh, and oftentimes there's a huge amount of overlap between the groups that are affected and the groups that really didn't contribute to the actions driving these forces. So, uh, you know, this effect definitely extends to cities as well, especially as the world is getting increasingly urbanized. Uh, you know, so we have to think about concepts like uh, environmental racism uh, and, you know, as Kate touched upon with uh, segregation and housing, for example, how those factors in the built environment kind of translate into environmental phenomenon, like the urban heat island effect, where some people are exposed to much higher levels of heat than is kind of safe, uh, how air pollution kind of clusters and we have hot spots of air pollution in cities. So I think, uh, you know, the problems are many, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, we can really try and hold on to some optimism and say that also means we have a huge opportunity space in front of us and it's really incredible to see how communities all over the world are stepping up and advocating for themselves um, especially with the help of kind of low-cost environmental sensing um, so I think that that is really kind of a key technology that helps around environmental understanding uh, and around transparency and kind of what's going on and what people are exposed to uh, but equally important is then actually you know working together to address those problems so I think what's really, really great about kind of having a multifaceted, uh, you know, approach to, to urban sensing is that you get to develop these low cost sensor technologies, uh, which can hopefully be distributed to people across the world to empower them to collect more data. But then also you kind of need to form those community partnerships and those partnerships with local governments to understand, okay, if we have all of this really, really helpful information, how are we actually going to make sure that we act on it? So I think that there's actually, uh, you know, the, the problem space is actually really coming from a, a a social space is thinking about what social forces cause these environmental problems. And the solution space, I think, is really equal parts of uh, socially driven and kind of technologically driven in the service of all of these social factors. So it's a really fascinating, really much more complex space than you would originally think. You know, like atmospheric chemistry is already really complicated, right? But, you know, you can, you can kind of like 
get a degree in civil engineering and, and kind of understand a little bit more about how those processes work. But having these lived experiences of these really complex social systems is actually, I think, a, a really overlooked uh, part of the environmental movement. And so I really appreciate environmental justice, um, uh, figures in the environmental justice movement kind of pushing those issues to the forefront. So it's a very transitional time right now. Amazing. Claire? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Kate and Sanjana's work respectively addresses the social and environmental dimensions of cities and the problems that we have in those aspects. And both of those elements are also encoded in the physical city. For instance, the fact that many of our cities here in the US <clears throat> are built around cars or they surround central business districts that are empty half the time, but air conditioned all the time or the capital projects we build um, that end up being huge devotion of resources to urban spaces that end up being civically and ecologically void. Um, things like Hudson Yards, for instance. Um, and I think there are elements of the, the social and environmental city that we can um, improve on a physical level. And some of the work that we've done in the lab addresses that. So the, the Favelas 4D project, um, for instance, used 3D laser scanning to analyze the morphology of a Brazilian favela or an informal settlement, um, which has an extremely different architectural paradigm from the formalized cities that we're used to in the global north. Um, the built environment is based around social and familial relationships. Families build their home with a flat roof, and then as their family expands, they build on top of it. So it's small units that are um, progressively added to over time and that are connected by um, networks of semi-public, semi-private pedestrian arteries. Um, and these environments are not very well mapped. There's only a small fraction um, of Rocinha, the favela we worked on um, in Google Maps. And so we have very little information about them. So we went and collected this information and analyzed it. And part of the, the point of that was to identify ways in which um, the favela environment can be um, equitably and carefully improved. Things like looking at um, structural stability in these um, landslide prone areas um, that are very densely built or things like um, airspace and sunlight access, given that they sometimes have environmental health problems. But at the same time, we can look at this alternate urban paradigm and learn something from um, another way of building, of building cities. And of course, it's important not to fetishize um, these environments, which are ultimately the product of a lack of affordable housing and a very disenfranchised community. But there is also um, some really amazing value to be found in the ingenuity of um, building in this way. And I think we can look around and learn from things other than um, the built environment that we're surrounded by um, here in America and, and find some really exciting alternative ways of, of building that will improve um, the social and environmental dimensions of our cities. Amazing. All right, I'm gonna do like a synthesis of everything I've heard and we'll like, <laughs> like to get your like thoughts on that. Like number one, I think what I'm hearing a lot is that, I mean, we do live and operate in complex systems, right? Like we, uh, I'm by definition, even if we can, uh, plan cities as if it was like a complicated system or buildings that we're going to inhabit. Once we introduce human behavior to it, it automatically becomes complex system. And then you're also talking about all these environmental factors that are already complex systems on their own. So we're dealing with highly complex problems, which therefore they call for emergent practices. But we cannot reach those emergent practices unless we have much better understanding of what we're interacting with too, which is like all the solutions that you're describing to me is like really bringing visibility, um, transparency, and um, data, get, data gathering really on these flows, interactions, and um, I guess environmental aspects of cities in general. So that's what I heard overall, which I think is um, hugely important to understand, you know, um, there is the infrastructure aspect to it, which you're also, you know, tracking information on, but the human element to it is very, um, um, you know, complex at times chaotic, depending on the times we live in, because it's a very volatile uh, environment that we live in today. Um, and with that, we are 
we kind of need to be more um, almost like responsive and adaptive to what we're observing because we cannot necessarily always I, I hear that we cannot necessarily always rely on kind of like prescriptive measures uh, because to your point, cities might be like having very, very different interactions just because of their environmental setting context and human culture there. Um, and I like two issue like problems, I guess I, uh, I heard is uh, also though like how these infrastructures could um, be the culprit for segregation, right? It's kind of like defining the flows of the human behavior through the transit system, through housing, through planning. And um, it's very interesting how that kind of evolves from there too. Um, for example, I, I live in Brooklyn, New York and right next to Fort Green Park. And Fort Green Park uh, on one side, it has social housing. On the other side has a very gentrified neighborhood. So to me, I would assume, you know, the park is the area of congregating. This is where the two actually communities meet and it's a more diverse group, but that doesn't happen. I never see people from social housing in the other side of the park, nor even in the center, but only at the edge that they border through, through their housing. And I see a very different population on a different side of the park. And it's so mind blowing to me in terms of like, well, but in, when you just think about planning, this was supposed to work, but why isn't the human flow really um, representing that? And that's where we kind of start losing insight. And that's where I think what you, you guys are working on is really interesting because that can bring in more insight into why is that happening, even though we planned for that not to happen. So that I find very fascinating. And then you mentioned about, you know, the environment and housing and how is that impacting health? And we often say, you know, housing is health in our studio too, um, just because of, you know, um, like the differences we see in, I guess, healthcare uh, uh, implications of communities based on the environments they live in. Um, and it's very interesting to be able to gather further data on that, to you know, talk to local governments and CBOs, as you said, or really um, forcing bottom-up progress and push in order to influence top-down policies. As we all know, policy often lags. So waiting for a policy does not necessarily, or it's outdated, right? We plan and create zoning regulations and things and there. They were created maybe 1970s. We live in a total different world now. So in that sense, it, it could be an amazing way to really like influence policy and not wait for a policy to come down to create more environmental justice or uh, stop, you know, creating inequitable spaces throughout cities. Um, and then finally, what I what I heard in uh, my uh, synthesis was that in terms of the, the value in studying these overlooked or underserved environments. And it's very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm part-time faculty at Parsons School of Design and we were just in class yesterday talking about uh, Alejandro Aravena's um, uh, favela project where he did like half of a good home. I don't know if you know that project, but so <clears throat> bringing the flexibility uh, for the families there to continue to build upon it, um, which inherently I think it's genius just because it really understands the community and it's very human centric in that sense like really understanding the human behaviors and therefore living leaving them a space but more secure and a controlled space for them to um, uh, continue to create so providing that flexibility for placemaking to happen and I think you know, we live in such a volatile world, and I think the term now is VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We live in a VUCA world um, that we, we, I definitely agree that we somehow need to bring in that flexibility, adaptability more to our infrastructure, um, just because like having such rigid settings do not work anymore. And um, it's much more costly maybe in some settings to be able to do that. But I guess the question is how do we learn from maybe favelas in that sense that we could bring that flexibility 
and adaptability into uh, urban settings in United States as well. Um, so hopefully I understood everything correct. Was that, was that a proper, I guess, um, framing and uh, synthesis of what you just shared? Yeah, I think that was a perfect synthesis. <laughs> great. great All right. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Great. So I guess my follow-up question then on these is that what are some of the challenges have you been seeing in because what you're doing is you, first of all, you're identifying an emergent practice to even research further on these, right? Like we're gonna try this because we want to get more information on X, Y, Z. And then there's the communication of that data and potential, I guess, proposals, design proposals of what might happen based on the insights. So throughout this process, like research, I guess, synthesis and like design ideation, what are some of the challenges or roadblocks that you see or you um, get feedback that, you know, this won't work because, or we cannot use that in as data here because, or um, there, this is not our responsibility. So we cannot act on that. Like any type of like pushback or um, I guess criticism or roadblock that you faced uh, while you're like, I guess, kicking these off and uh, implementing. <laughs> I have a technical one. Um, so one of the dimensions that we work with and around um, at the Sensible City Lab is privacy and the different expectations mm -hmm. of um, how and where and what kind of data we can collect. Um, and I would hesitate to call that a roadblock because I wouldn't want to insinuate that we are trying to get around anybody's idea right, of privacy. Right. Um, and so it's not so much a problem that we face as a, an informant of our research and the kind of research that we do. Um, so for instance, in the favelas project, um, doing things like measuring the height of buildings or the width of streets is actually much easier to do with images than it is to do with 3D laser scanning uh, point cloud information. That the data that we have collected is um, very heavy, it's extremely dense, um, and it's very, challenging to work with because there are not, for instance, the machine learning tools available yet to infer from a LiDAR point cloud what is a wall and what is a window and what is a door, whereas you can very, very easily identify those things um, in images and get much more um, information that, for instance, counts things like units um, or measures um, regions and images, et cetera, uh, from, from two-dimensional image information. However, in a favela environment, um, the community is very uncomfortable with cameras. Um, the residents are not uh, open to outside people coming in with, with iPhones or with other kinds of cameras and walking around taking photos or video of their environment. However, the, the LiDAR scanner, because it's a surveying tool and because it's not capturing anything that's identifiable to a person, um, is much more um, amenable to their privacy needs. And so we have had to be very creative about our research methods in order to accommodate that. And I think um, that's kind of an example of how you have to work around the existing city and the existing expectations in order to get to something something better. Um, and so it's, it's on us as the researchers to find creative ways to um, get the information that we're looking for and answer the questions that we're interested in in ways that are minimally disruptive um, to the communities that we work with. I love that. Anything else? Yeah, I think an additional, I, I think Claire is exactly right that I think privacy comes into play in all the projects that we work on just because data gathering is such a big part of what we do. Um, I think kind of a separate issue that you've touched on a bit, um, the really cool thing, I mean, what we do at the Sensible City Lab is a lot of sensing, so a lot of like gathering of data. Um, and what's cool about that is that we can take kind of ideas and theories about urban design, like as you said, putting a park in between two different communities will help to bring them together, which are based on kind of like local knowledge and observation. Um, and we can kind of upscale the observation in a big way. So we can say, okay, well, if you take kind of 
pings from cell phone users across the world, are they actually gathering in parks or not? And by doing that upscaling, we can like really pick up on nuances that wouldn't necessarily be feasible with like manual observation of individuals. Um, like for instance, people aren't actually mixing on a finer <laughs> geospatial scale if you're inside of a park. But at the same time with that upscaling of observation, I think we can run into risks of painting too broad of strokes and missing out on local knowledge, which is also really important. Um, so one, I think, example of that is I work on a project with the city of Stockholm um, and researchers at KTH in Stockholm. So I, I'm kind of from my little computer in Cambridge, um, crunching a bunch of numbers about the way that people move around Stockholm with only having been to Stockholm once um, for several days and uh, not speaking Swedish, not knowing, you know, like not being fully ingrained in Swedish culture, et cetera. So every month, the fact that it's a partnership with the city of Stockholm and with urban planners um, who do more qualitative work inside of KTH um, has been super, super valuable because every month we have a meeting where I say, this is what I'm seeing in the data. And they say, this is why that doesn't make sense. Um, or this is why no one's going to kind of respond to that information in a valuable way as people who like live in the city and actually know what goes on there. Um, so navigating, like communicating information um, to people who are I think it's two different things. One, communicating information to people who are kind of like coming from different backgrounds, be that the people who we're working with inside the city of Stockholm, the researchers at KTH, and the, the kind of Swedish public, which we've ha had done a lot of webinars, just communicating results to um, the people in Stockholm about kind of like what the research that they are paying for is showing, um, has been super interesting just in terms of thinking about how to, how to communicate knowledge in a way that's really valuable, but then also like receiving local knowledge from all of those right. stakeholders has been really important in terms of designing research and making sure that we're not, um, you know, getting lost in the numbers and not actually taking like valuable context into account. So yeah, I think just making sure that we can both receive and communicate more, more local knowledge outside of the, more detached academic context, I think, is an issue that we run into in all of our projects as well. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think the points that you both brought up around, uh, you know, privacy, context, and communication uh, are central themes in any urban data gathering sort of experiment, is making sure that you can respect people's right to privacy, um, is making sure that, you know, this isn't like a strangely detached environmental sensing project, where even though it's embedded in the environment, it's not interacting with anyone in the environment. So thinking about those things, and I guess more broadly, then also thinking about just research practices, right, which, you know, okay, I think you used a great term saying like the kind of detached academic world, because like, sometimes it's really tempting to just be like, wow, this is such a cool, interesting problem. What a cool, interesting environment. But especially when it comes to like, you know, the environment, the built environment, the air that we breathe, you know, it's not theoretical, right? It's, it's very real and it affects all of us very, very much. So thinking, I think, carefully and thinking critically about research practices and who they've served in the past, who they've helped and who they've harmed, uh, and thinking critically about that in the context of local knowledge, of environmental knowledge, of the environmental situation we're in, uh, of the, the phrase you said earlier, Volca, like a volatile, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, like the really yeah, yeah. volatile world that we're in, how can we contextualize these academic practices so that they actually help people in these spaces, right, and connect with communities. And then secondly, I think also talking about kind of our really great partnership with KTH Royal Institute of Technology is figuring out how to bridge like the, the hope gap, right? A sentence that you see a lot of times in environmental papers is that like, we hope that this will help policymakers make decisions, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily a strategy. So something that's really, really, I think, useful about the work that we do and that's really valuable is being able to connect with people who are in city and local government and kind of speak with them further to understand like, is this actually helpful in the way that we thought it was kind of going back to contextualizing how we do research and why we do research. So um, 
trying to figure out how to then apply that knowledge in other cities across the world while also maintaining the utmost respect for local culture and local practices uh, is I think a big challenge that extends far beyond the reaches of our lab, uh, but is something I think we definitely engage with a lot at our lab since we have the privilege of working with partners from all over the world. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's uh, so in terms of, you know, the challenges you, uh, you face, I hear, you know, I guess like, Communication, communication and bridging the quantitative and qualitative, as well as um, uh, really like defining the right research methods. But it also do sound sounds like it's something that you can address through really co-creation um, in order to you know identify research methods that would work for a community or um, really work with like partners that are local, whether those are like local authorities or CBOs to make sure you are uh, working on something more authentic and it's not really like top down. Um, so in that sense, um, I, I feel like not to, to your point, Claire, like really um, overcoming roadblocks, but is it really creating a better framework that would work for everybody. And what you said also, uh, Sanjana, in terms of, you know, helping build almost a strategic roadmap to ensure, uh, to bridge kind of the, uh, like academia and practice, right? Because there's like wonderful research that we also often like look into in academia, um, uh, but also like we always face, okay, but then um, unless if there's like policy around it, how we how might we implement this? And we, we could run into like uh, kind of like large gaps there, but uh, providing something feasible or identifying urban interventions that might help uh, mm -hmm. and implementation, I think those are invaluable to really be able to bring that valuable data and research into practice and really um, empower and encourage urban planners too, because I, I could see everything that you're doing um, could be a potential like toolkit really for urban planner um, to really better uh, or more, I guess, like, um, I don't want to say better, but create something that is more flexible or adaptive or um, uh, addressing local needs as well, and not necessarily bringing like an overarching view of, you know, this is the right, right way to plant cities. So this is what we're going to do, do here. Um, so I guess with all of that, one question I would have to you all is, um, and you did mention like working with locals, which is like very important, but also how do you see such tool, tools and mechanisms um, scale, uh, understanding different mindsets as well and cultures? So um, quick example, I'm not gonna give any names. We're, not, we're called Let's Try With, but we don't wanna trash talk about people. But uh, I, so uh, we, we were meeting with um, Schiphol Airport in uh, Amsterdam, uh, and they were talking about all like the transitions that they're doing um, in uh, in the Schiphol Airport, like going into really like circular model, even you know leasing out the light bulbs so that they make sure it goes back to the manufacturer and they're not throwing it trash when the uh, when it's uh, completes its uh, lifetime, whatever, all of that. And then we were discussing how do we consider also human behavior in ensuring Schiphol actually becomes very sustainable because, you know, if uh, the people visiting the airport um, is not, let's say, recycling pro properly or um, uh, not uh, utilizing retail shops that actually provide sustainable uh, materials or products or food, whatever that is, um, it does not necessarily help them get to the all the goals that they have, right? So they could create kind of like the infrastructure that is sustainable, but how might they actually um, I, uh, create uh, interventions within the airport to help uh, sustainability come as a convenience to all the visitors as well? So that was like something we were exploring. And I was talking about this to a developer um, in United States. And then, uh, you know, like factoring in human behavior and identifying interventions that would really enable uh, sustainability to become a convenience and a common practice for the users and visitors. And that person um, told me, well, yeah, that would never work in, uh, in a capitalist um, country. So this could not work in US. So like very, by the way, like these, like they have no budget problems. They're one of the largest, right? So um, it's not about budget even. Um, but it's just the mindset and uh, this like prejudice on 
why like we can or cannot do that. So I guess like, uh, I'm curious and you know, once you become data-driven, is that how we kind of like overcome these? Like how do we shift paradigms and mindsets through bringing more visibility and bringing more data? And how do you see we navigate around this so what you're doing could also scale to better inform and help people actually adopt better practices? I mean, I feel like that's the ultimate question, right? The biggest question. I've um, but having it be the biggest question also means that there's not just one answer, right? Uh, is that, you know, when we think about any of the largest problems that we're facing, climate change, biodiversity loss, and global pandemic, these are all really big questions that need a combination of top-down policies, bottom-up approaches, um, and also like, you know, whatever, uh, whatever stuff can be sort of driven from the middle ground. So, I mean, I think that there's... Uh, the, the the only way I can think of to approach that question is to start by approaching one facet of that question at a time, mm -hmm. right? And is to, you know, remember sort of to contextualize things that like, yes, you're in this larger sort of global system, especially in the industrialized global north, but also, you know, you have a certain sphere of influence and kind of how can you drive tangible action in that sphere of influence? And then once you've made a certain amount of progress, how can you start to kind of reach beyond that sphere of influence? So that's one aspect of it and then the other aspect of it it's it's kind of like the individual versus collective action when it comes to climate policy right you can tell people to recycle and compost all you want but if the infrastructure to compost doesn't exist how how are they going to actually do that right so i think it's it's just kind of thinking about specific instances uh, of those things and kind of saying okay like what can i do right now who can i speak with uh what amount of uh again privilege do I have to sort of like influence this certain amount of space? Who can I advocate for? Um, and kind of start from there, just because I, I really feel it feels so overwhelming sometimes that otherwise you don't know what to do. And I've definitely had those moments, you know, working, uh, both looking at global air quality and also in previous roles, kind of looking at global air quality patterns, just like paralyzed, like this is yeah. so bad. This is so bad. We literally have entirely new weather systems and storms springing from wildfires, which are reaching, you know, smoke plumes lofting to heights that we never should have seen in natural systems before, stuff like that. So it can get really bad really quickly. So I think just kind of, again, scaling down, understanding it's multifaceted and that like these things, uh, you know, these decisions that kind of put these maybe not so great systems in place were made by people. And so good decisions can also be made by people. This isn't something that we just have to live with. We can work together and we can sort of build a future that is much more equitable and much more safe uh, and much more just. So I don't even know if that was an answer, <laughs> but that's that was a perfect answer. You basically just told me um, systems view sometimes could be paralyzing. So we really need to kind of identify um, uh, elements of that that we could start addressing and really going back to what you first said around like uh, building in a strategy and the strategic roadmap to like how like who do we even start talking to about this right like in the end the more successful case studies and examples we could create the more it's going to have influence in the industry anyway so we just need to find maybe let's say the early adopters or people who really like understand or value the data value the research and want to try something different and after that like really creating those examples to not only influence um like other players in the system but also policy potentially to expedite this because as you said nothing is going to work without public private partnership and collaboration and we really need to um like and policy does expedite things for sure we see this more even on like uh, sustainability efforts today like 10 years ago if we talked to developers about sustainability the reaction they would give was was so much more different than what it is today now having all the local regulations or uh federal regulations as well and you know we for example a shift we're seeing more in maybe consumer goods and other industries is more towards like um, inclusion and human centricity so thinking more about equity which we don't necessarily see that yet a lot in real estate maybe a little bit more in urban planning but we also know you know a few years from now that's going to be a larger conversation it's just a lagging conversation so how do we help expedite this through the right strategy and really defining kind of milestones for ourselves like get there too because I do agree like and when we throw in like 
terms that are so big as well, like climate change. What does that even mean? Like, how do you break that down? Like, what, what is that? Like, how does an individual start action towards that too? It's very difficult. Um, but we do need to be able to break down the problem just because, you know, awareness is a starting point. But if we do want to take action, we need to realize that we could only do like so much at one at a time. But really having kind of an objective of where we're going, I think that's what we all could you know, uh, aim for. Um, so in that sense, I, uh, I definitely resonate with what you're saying. And also it really helps me to also like calm down at times when I'm, you know, like also very frustrated and you're like, this is, we need a global collaboration like today. Why is this not happening a uh, moment? Um, but yes, totally hear you. Um, so I guess also I would love to ask, uh, you gave examples of some of the projects you're working on, um, kind of what's next for a sensible city lab, what other type of projects you would like to work on, or what do, what do you, would you like to see more at the lab or any new exciting things that are happening? <laughs> if it's not confidential, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> This is a hard question to answer for one person because the lab goes in a lot of different directions at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Um, we have teams working on visual AI, we have engineers building autonomous boats and city scanner devices, we have data scientists like Kate, we have designers working on things. Um, so it's hard to say that there's one specific direction that we're moving in. Um, however, I would say that one of the exciting things that's happening more and more at the lab as we do more and more research is that we are approaching um, the same topics and themes from many different angles and we can synthesize insights from that. So for instance, um, one of the lab's earlier projects a few years ago um, is called Treepedia and it uses um, Google Street View imagery and visual AI approaches to identify um, essentially a green index in the city by figuring out which pixels are green. Um, <clears throat> and that project kind of hinges on this assumption that green is good. We want our cities to be as green as they can be. And in many ways, that kind of basic assumption makes sense. But then in Kate's work, for instance, we see that actually maybe parks are not as successful as social mixing places as we might think. So there is more to green space than initially meets the eye. And green space needs other things um, about it in terms of the, the design, the quantity, the location, um, in order to be successful as a social mixing place. Um, and then in Sanjana's work also, we find that um, in a recent city scanner deployment in the Bronx in particular, air quality um, particulate concentrations actually spike near parks because their parks tend to be located near highways and because there are also um, aspects of the metabolism of trees that impact um, the air quality in certain ways as well. She can elaborate on that in case I'm saying it wrong. Um, but essentially my point is that we do research that touches on different themes in, in cities, but also we approach the same themes from different directions. And I think there are um, interesting insights that can be synthesized from using different kinds of information and different approaches to look at um, these factors in cities and therefore gain a more holistic idea um, of what we need to prioritize. I love that. I also know it was a tough question for like three researchers who are like, work out there, what's the dream project? Uh, <laughs> um, but anything, uh, Sanjana, can you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I'm not sure this is actually an answer to the question that you asked, but kind of spiraling off of what Claire said about collaboration between different perspectives. I think something that's been really exciting about the lab recently, um, I, I've been working here like the by far the majority of my time has been COVID era when I've been sort of like alone on my computer in my in my apartment. Um, or, or my parents' living room at times. Um, and so being back in person has been really exciting for the reasons that Claire said. There are like a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives in one place who are interested in the same issues. Um, so I've been working on a few projects with a little team of us who are like 
and someone who is an economist, as a PhD student in the urban studies program here, um, someone who is a transportation planner, and then myself, like a little number cruncher. And um, the fact that we've had a team of people who are coming from different like academic backgrounds and are really interested in the same things, um, but have different skill sets and uh, backgrounds of literature living in our heads and approaches living in our heads um, and can tackle the same problem has been really a fun and exciting part about being in the same place as other people. And I think has kind of produced the types of research that Claire was talking about where we can kind of realize that we're looking at the same issues from different perspectives and see what we have to learn from one another, um, which I think has been just exciting and hopeful. And there's actually a project in the lab on what being in the same space does for collaboration <laughs> using email. So I love that. that's a cool paper if you wanna check it out. I would love to check it out. <laughs> Sanjana, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I just really want to build off of I think collaboration is really key. Um, I think that what I really appreciate about the lab is the very interdisciplinary or sometimes even anti-disciplinary approach to problems. Uh, because one thing that used to really bother me, I'm an electrical engineer by training. Uh, so I studied electrical engineering and physics. And now I have to draw a diagram to explain to people that I'm an electrical engineer, but I work in air quality in the urban planning department and like people still don't really get it. So I really appreciate that just, you know, the focus questions and problems and objectives as opposed to no you studied this so you have to do that so I uh, am excited for the lab to continue to just collaborate across disciplines to kind of approach um, problems and projects in the way that I think the 21st century really demands and honestly how problems have always demanded it's just been a disservice to kind of research that I wasn't <laughs> conducted that way before yeah, no, I, I love that. I mean, my background is in industrial engineering and finance, and now I practice in design strategy. So it's, I like, I, we like at Sour, we very much value diverse uh, lived and professional experiences. So I think it definitely is the way to address even the problems we're facing today, because there are such com complex problems that there's no way one discipline or experience could address. So it's um, crucial, especially in the field that you're studying. Um, last but not least, uh, I would love to hear any like tips or quick advice to anybody who wants to make progress in this world. I feel like <laughs> I feel like what I'm gonna say is you should listen to what Sanjana said like five minutes ago because I felt inspired by it just in terms of I think there are a lot of problems in the world and it can be really overwhelming trying to figure out like where your place is and like studying them and thinking about them. Um, and no one can solve any large problem on their own, but we can all kind of do little tiny pieces of the puzzle. Um, and so I think just finding something that you think is interesting and fun to study and also that you think kind of works towards a mission that you're excited about. Um, however small that is, is kind of all that anyone can do. Um, and I think what what she said was was really useful and important about not kind of getting paralyzed by the big picture and like the giant problems and just kind of focusing on something that you're excited about and you think is good. I love that. Absolutely. I think to add to that on this topic of collaboration, all three of us are interdisciplinary people working in an interdisciplinary environment. Um, but one of the things that I personally have learned um, since joining the lab is that emphatically, there's no point in being interdisciplinary on your own. The point of interdisciplinarity <laughs> is to be able to communicate with other people across the disciplines that you know and don't know. Um, so I would say it's amazing to study architecture and computer science and data science and transportation and electrical engineering and um, environmentalism and all of these things. Um, but the, the objective of that is to be able to communicate with other people who are on either side and within all of those fields. Um, and so I think to that end, um, I would emphasize the importance of communication and um, the importance of articulating the the data that we have, the findings that we have, um, and what we're offering from a research standpoint um, to, to everyone in terms of making um, collaboration possible. Um, so interdisciplinary thinking and also um, clear communication of, of our research, our priorities of the labs, and I think um, our values that can be carried forth in other interdisciplinary projects as well. Right, so interdisciplinary evolving into 
I guess, transdisciplinary, so that it transcends beyond your disciplines. I guess that is yeah. that probably, <laughs> there are a lot of like disciplinary, I guess, like words, but I guess that's what we mean here. Got it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Sanjana? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess two, two things. One uh, is like really, really deeply learn from people who have come before you. Uh, both in terms of, you know, that's a great starting point if you're not sure where to start. Uh, and then also there's no need to reinvent the wheel every single time. And it allows for much deeper impact. Again, if you engage with local communities who already have local knowledge, uh, if you explore methods that have been put forward by people, stuff like that. So do a, do a landscape analysis of kind of your interests and kind of how you want to approach doing things. Um, and then the second thing, I guess, is don't let your imagination be limited. Uh, you know, because again, the bounds of like disciplinarity and oh, this is all that's possible, you know, the yeah. economy, we're not going to be able to address climate problems, we're not going to be able to make a just world for people. Don't let your imagination be limited by that, because it's very constraining, and it kind of doesn't allow you to think about what all is, is really possible. Because again, these systems were created by people, and people can change them. So I think, um, you know, one thing I really wish that I had thought of when I was, or someone had told me when I was younger, is that you don't have to like, uh, be constrained to kind of the same bounds as as everyone who's kind of come before you or kind of even is with you right now you can think a little bit beyond that if you want and kind of aim for that even if it seems totally impossible because that's how the status quo has shifted in the past right is thinking about oh my gosh it would be so crazy if we had a solar panel right? <laughs> <laughs> and now we have a bunch of solar panels so yeah i think i think uh learn from those who, uh, who came before you and don't let your imagination be limited. I, I love these so much. I wish I heard all of these when I was, I was also younger, but better, better late than never. So, and thank you for providing that to our audience. And thank you so much for your time today. This was such a treat. I feel like I could talk to you three all day uh, with so many <laughs> questions and I guess um, curiosity and venting probably all of the above uh, that we face in our like also day to day. But your work is incredibly meaningful and I hope it transcends into very dis diverse disciplines and um, countries and cities uh, so that we just create better environments for ourselves and the future. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank it you. was great to talk to you. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong With The Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate it if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.